0: John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Hear the word of the Lord. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overtake it this is the word of the lord so we are continuing on in in the gospel of john and um the way that we're starting is going to make it feel as though we're never going to get out of the gospel of john Um, uh, please don't be too concerned about that i don't really plan to be in the Gospel of John for years on end, Um, though one of you wrote me a note when you, I think for Christmas, I don't want to name you because I'll put you on the spot, but one of you wrote me a note saying what a joy it was for most of your childhood to sit under sermons that were being preached through the Gospel of John. I think it was seven years that they sat under the Gospel of John or something like that. And uh, they said that we're looking forward to our children having the same experience and uh, (laughs) My hope is not to be in the Gospel of John for seven years. Other things to consider. but However, with that being said, this morning my intention was to get all the way through verse 5. Um, and the more that I labored to do that, the uh, more my conscience just felt unsettled uh, by trying to cover that much this morning. So we're only really going to talk about verse 3. And some of the first part of verse four today in in John chapter one. So just so that you're aware, that's what we're hoping to cover today. Yeah, so we are we're continuing on in John and I would invite you to pray with me as we pick it back up this morning. Lord Jesus, we recognize that you truly are indeed the one that we were made to know. Lord, as our text today is going to make so clear, you're the one that made us. And therefore, how could you not be the one that we are made to know? Father, we thank you that you have spoken in your Son. In these last days, you have given us a full and a perfect revelation of who you are and of what you expect from us as your creatures made in your image. You've given us clear revelation and clear knowledge in this person called the Word, your beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that this morning you would help us see him. What more could we ask Lord, than that you would enable us to see, to behold the glory of your Son. But we know that in, in beholding his glory, we see your glory, Father. We know the glory and the majesty of the Holy Spirit and his ministry in our hearts when we see and behold the Son more clearly. So please, Father, look upon us and have mercy. On us this morning. None of us have come into this room with hearts and minds that are focused on the Son the way they ought to be, Father. None of us have come in this room uh, with hearts overflowing with joy and delight and the pleasure of knowing you and your Son, at least not the way that they should be overflowing. And so Lord, we pray that in your mercy you would Look beyond and overlook our shortcomings and our failings, and even the sins that have caused us to feel dull and numb today, Lord. The pain that we deal with as we walk through this life, the emotional pain, the the the, the physical pain, Lord. All these things, that the trials of the world and the struggles of living in the midst of the darkness, Lord, and trying to be witnesses for the light and trying to live as children of the light. All of these things come in upon us, Lord, and weigh us down. And we pray that this morning, by your grace, your spirit would enable us to be freed from those distractions and focus our attention more squarely upon the glory of your Son. Lord, that's the one that you want us to see this morning. So please help us see him. Father, we pray for this blessing in the name of Jesus Christ and for his glory. Your glory among us. Amen. 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 Well, our aim as we walk through this book uh, that's really captured for us what it was like to see Christ in His glory. Our aim in doing this and studying this book is simply to more fully behold the Son. That's John 6.40. This is the will of the Father who sent the Son, was that we would behold the Son and believe in Him. And in order to behold Him and in order to believe in Him, He has to be presented to us, right? That is why John wrote this gospel, to present the glory of the Son to us so that we might see Him in His glory and that we might believe, That's the purpose here. Now, we're currently walking through the opening verses of the introduction of John. And uh, the first few verses are often referred to as the prologue. Most would would, uh, say the prologue ends at verse 18. Um, No no qualms with that. But just for the sake of framing within our minds that these verses contain three main assertions or statements that are being made about the word. Okay? So really what we're doing as we're walking through these first five verses is we are looking at these three main assertions that John is making about the Word here in the opening of chapter one. Now we looked at the first assertion last week, right? That was in John 1 1 and 2, uh, where uh, we are seeing uh, what is stressed there being the Word's relationship with God. Right? Here the assertion is right at the beginning of verse 1 that In the beginning was the word. That's a statement about the word. right? What what is it saying about him? It's saying, well, when the beginning happened, the word already was. right? So John makes that statement, and then he elaborates on what he means by that statement in the statements that follow. So he says, in the beginning was the word. And what does it mean that the word was in the beginning? Well, it means that he was with God. It means that he was God. It means that this one was in the beginning with God. All of those statements are elaborating this assertion that John has made at the opening of verse 1. And so it's clearly stressing the Word's relationship with God, that he was eternally existing in fellowship with God. Here, we're specifically talking about the Father, God the Father. Stresses that he is one who has shared for eternity he is shared equally in the divine being of the Father, and yet is a person who is distinct from him. Right? And so, as we mentioned last week, this gives us here the building blocks of our doctrine of the Trinity that there is one being that is God, and this eternal being that is God has eternally existed in three persons co equal, co eternal, all living together, dwelling together, being one God. In fellowship forever. That is the great mystery of the Trinity that's going to be thrust in upon us throughout the rest of the Gospel. And so that's why I didn't spend a lot of time talking about the doctrine of the Trinity last week, because we're going to be talking about the doctrine of the Trinity a lot as we walk through the Gospel of John. But what I want to point out is that last week, just to remind us, even here from the opening of this book, what's clear is that John is showing us that there can be no worship of God, there can be no faith in God, there can be no love for God, without that love and faith and worship being focused on this person called the Word also. Right? So that is that first assertion that we looked at last week. Now, the second assertion is found in verse 3, where the focus is on the Word's relationship to creation. John 1 3 says, All things came into being through him, that is the Word, and apart from him, apart from the Word, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now we've seen who the Word is in relation to God, but who is the Word in relation to the world? Who is the Word in relation to plants and animals? Who is the word in relation to planets and elements? Who is the word in relation to stars and galaxies and grains of sand and atoms? Well, John 1.3 declares unapologetically that the word in relation to all of those things is the source of those things. He is the uncaused cause, in other words, that lies behind everything that exists. He is the reason that there is anything rather than nothing, right? He is the ultimate reality that stands behind everything that you and I experience as reality. Now that is a glorious truth that you need to let sink down into your soul. We're going to unpack this more fully today, but what you need to understand right as we begin is that there is no experience in your life in this world that is not intimately and directly related to the sun. Whether you are a believer or an unbeliever, whether we're talking about fish swimming in the ocean, whales, whether we're talking about tigers and lions or trees growing in the jungle or the snow melting outside in front of us, thank God the snow is going away. Praise God, right? The sun is coming. I heard one of you talk about the beauty of the sun this morning, feeling rejuvenated by the warmth of the sun, getting some more vitamin D in us. We all look a little happier. It's wonderful. There is nothing that we experience or anything that we can talk about in this world that is not directly relating to Jesus. That's the point that John's making here right from the beginning, and that's the point that he's going to spend the rest of the gospel on. Explaining to us, right? That the life and the ministry of Jesus shows us this reality, that there is no element, no aspect, no part, no atom. No, what would R.C. Sproul say? There's no rogue atom in the universe. Well, there is no rogue atom in your life that is not connected directly to Jesus Christ the Son. Now, our job is to see that connection, to believe in Him, and to worship Him in light of it. So he is, Christ is the ultimate reality that stands behind everything that we experience as reality in this world. Now John 1 verse 3 states this in two ways. You have it stated positively and then you have it stated negatively. So positively stated, John says, all things came into being through him. Now the structure of these words in Greek seems to lay emphasis on all things, That's what comes first in this verse in Greek. And that seems to be what John wants us to grapple with in our minds. He wants us to take this picture of all things, all creation, from the very far reaches of the universe down to the atoms and and, and particles that we deal with in microscopic biology or anything else in between. We're to have this concept of, of all things in our mind And understand that it is only through him that any of it has been made. That's what John's driving at. And when it says that it all came about through him, John is identifying the word as the means by which it all came into existence. We'll elaborate on that in a sec. Now, after making that positive statement, he elaborates on it further by stating it negatively, right? Saying everything came into being through him. And if that was not clear enough, let me say it another way. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now that's a very strong way of saying this, right? There's a lot of negatives in this verse. You could translate it this way. Not one single thing that has come into existence did so without Him. Now you can tuck that thought away in your mind for the next opportunity you have speaking to a Jehovah Witness who believes that Jesus was the first and greatest created being that God made. And then through that created being made everything else. Well this verse tells us very plainly that that cannot be the case. Because Jesus is the one who made everything that was created. In fact, John says it so plainly that he goes on to say, there is not one single thing that has come into existence that was made apart from him. Now, if he is a created being, then that statement can't be true because there was one thing that was created apart from him, and that would have been him, right? It's a wonderful way to reason with Jehovah's Witness, but close that parenthesis. hold on to it. So John is clearly bringing to our minds the reality of creation and saying that Jesus is the one that lies behind all of it. Now, what I want to do for the rest of our time this morning is I just want to look at some, some thoughts. I want to unpack some statements that help us understand what this verse is teaching us about the word and the word's relation to creation. All right. So I think I've got five. You kids, you have a kid's bulletin? Who has a kid's bulletin? How many, how many points do I have under main point number two? Five? Okay, yeah, I was right. I got five. Just trying to make sure the kids are awake. I think one of them is. Number one. What does this verse teach us about the word and the word's relationship to creation? Well, first of all, verse three hints at the relationship between the father and the son that is put on display through creation. Verse 3 hints at the relationship between the Father and the Son that is put on display through creation. We see this in one little word in verse 3, where it says, Everything was made through Him. That word. That Word is explaining to us the specific way in which this person, identified as the Word, is responsible for bringing all creation into existence. How did all things come into being? Well, it came into being through Him. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that's Genesis 1.1. And John 3 comes alongside of that and says, and by the way, the Word was the means by which He did it. In other words, the Word, the eternal Word of God, is the instrument by which God the Father's eternal conception of creation was actualized. Get that? So there's a concept of creation that has eternally existed within the mind of God. It is Jesus Christ who is the means of actualizing it, bringing it into reality. Now, we could argue about whether it's reality being in the mind of God or not, but we're not into that philosophical discussion right now. Paul writes the same thing in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. He says that there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. Now, Clearly, this is telling us that the triune God is the source of all creation. Father, Son, and Spirit, they are all involved in bringing creation about. But primarily, this verse tells us that everything comes from the Father, and everything comes from the Father in order to be for the Father, right? So it comes from Him, and it is all for Him. But the only way that anything comes from the Father and exists for the Father is as it comes by and through the Son. You see that? All things come from the Father. All things are for the Father. But the only way that that happens is when it comes by the Son and through the Son. It is through the Son that God made creation. Now... You're wondering, what, why is that so important? Well, We're going to have a long time to unpack why that's so important in the rest of the Gospel of John. So hold on to that question, and we'll get to it eventually. Number two. Because the relationship between God and the Son is revealed in some way through creation... Therefore, it is impossible for us to have a right understanding about creation without considering it in relation to the Son. Just as verses 1 through 2 imply that we cannot think rightly about God apart from thinking of Him in relation to the Word, so also we cannot think rightly about any part of God's creation apart from how it relates to Christ, the Word. So Colossians 1.16 says the same thing. For in Him, in Jesus, all things were created both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. Now that means that everything in this world... Whether we're dealing with things in the heavens or whether we're dealing with things on the earth, whether we're speaking of things that are visible or whether we're talking about things invisible, whether we're considering thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, whether in heaven or upon the earth, whatsoever things that may be, they exist for Jesus Christ and they exist through Jesus Christ and therefore ultimately they belong to Jesus Christ. He's the source, he's the sustainer, he's the owner, and that means that there is nothing that we can do in this world and do it rightly. If we are not doing what we're doing or interacting with what we're interacting with in its relationship to the Son. Everything belongs to him. They are all his, including you and me whether you acknowledge his ownership or not. John 17, right, what is it, verse two? Jesus says, Father, I praise you that you've given me all authority over humanity so that I might give eternal life to those whom you've given me. Jesus has all authority over every single human being in this world. And every single one of us belongs to him by decree of the Father. And therefore, to understand anything properly, we need to see it in its connection with the word. Statement number three. Everything in creation is designed to draw our attention back to the word, God the Son. Because something of God is revealed through, something of God's relationship with the Son is revealed through creation... It is impossible for us to have a right understanding about anything in creation without considering it in relation to the Son. And in light of that, everything in creation is designed to draw our attention back to the Word, God the Son. Now, these statements are building on each other as we go, so keep that in mind. Just as in Genesis chapter 1, we find over and over again... The statement that the goodness of God was manifest in his creation, you remember that, right? God spoke, it came to be, and it says God saw it, that it was good, right? And then there's that culminating declaration of the goodness of all creation at the end, where it says God looked upon all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It was exceedingly good, right? That goodness of creation was not inherent to creation, What made creation good in the beginning was that it reflected and manifested the goodness of the God who made it. Right. So it was was God being seen through his works that made the works of his hands good. Okay. Well, in that same way, John chapter 1 verse 3 is telling us that all things that have come into being that have been produced by the Father through means of the Son, are manifesting the innate fullness and the inherent goodness and the glory of the Word. All things spring into existence through the Word. Now, this means that no matter where we look in all of creation, we are necessarily being brought face to face with the words innate goodness and glory. You don't get that. No matter where we look in God's creation, we are necessarily being brought face to face with the words innate goodness and glory By the various ways it is expressed in creation. Maybe you didn't follow me there. Let me give you some examples. When we see the beauty of the sunrise or the sunset. Or, last night I couldn't sleep because the moon was just at the right point in the sky where it was rising in, in, in our window, right? So like our bed is right there and the window's right next to it and, and I just, I couldn't sleep because I was watching the glory of God manifesting in the travel of the moon, right? Just beautiful, wonderful. When we see things like that, what we are seeing is nothing less than the beauty of the word being manifested through it. See, this is, this is what's so incoherent about an atheistic or godless worldview. They appreciate beautiful things like art. They appreciate beautiful things like music, you know, music, an art form. They appreciate the wonder of things like mathematics, right? In fact, um, Albert Einstein, I think it was him that said, the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it's comprehensible. Right? They see the beauty and they acknowledge the beauty and the glory of something in creation, but they deny the one who actually is what makes it beautiful. Right. See, in an evolutionary, atheistic worldview, you have no basis to declare anything to be beautiful. You have nothing to stand upon to say that anything is right. There is no absolute standard of truth or beauty There's nothing that ought to be acknowledged as appealing and being better than some other option because there's no ultimate standard standing above it all. All you're dealing with are preferences, opinions of one mass of cells clumped together being brought up against the opinions of another mass of cells being clumped together. There's no meaning and no beauty behind any of it. It's meaningless. And yet, when we look at things like a sunrise... Even the most hard-hearted atheist must acknowledge the beauty that is manifesting in that scene. What makes it beautiful? Why is there beauty? Because of the beauty of the one who designed such a thing. I'll give another example, when we feel the warmth of the sun, when we sense the sun's light shining down upon us, we are sensing creation's picture of the warmth and the goodness of the embrace of Christ. That Jesus has designed, that God the Son, the triune God through the Son, has brought about something like the sun, S-U-N. And has caused it to relate to us in a way that pictures what it's like to be in relation with God himself. We enjoy being in the sun, don't we? I love to be a beach bum. I love to just sit on my vacations. I want to just sit on the beach where no one else is. And I want to be left alone and read a book. Like, let me fry, right? Dick, Dick Magler's back there going, brother, you don't want that. <laughs> put a shirt on, put an hat on. I love the sun. I love the beauty. I love the warmth. I love the joy, the delight that I get, the magnificence of it, the power of the sun. But all that is is an expression of the son of God being manifested to me. When we see the glory of lightning, right, who hasn't been in awe of seeing the glory of lightning when, when it's struck close to you, right, Mike? You feel, you feel the power of that lightning in the thunder, right? When you see the glory of lightning or you feel its power in thunder, what we are beholding is the glory and the power of the word who brought these things into existence. See, all of creation is merely a means by which God is showcasing his glory. And if you don't have that kind of perspective of creation, you are never going to relate to creation rightly. It will either be an idol or you'll be indifferent to it. But you'll never find the balance of enjoying it and acknowledging the way in which it manifests the glory of God until you see it in relation to the one who made it. It's my favorite one. In the beauty of the various colors that are dispersed out of pure white light. My favorite things is shining white light through a prism. Because you see the constituent colors break out on the other side of the prism that all combine on the first side of the prism to make white light. Who could imagine such a thing? Or who could create such surface? Who could could envision creating such surfaces that absorb certain of those colors and reflect others of those colors to allow observers like us to see its beauty? What makes a leaf green? It's that it's reflecting green light. What makes that brick red? Kind of muted red. Is that right? Or is it brown? Whatever it is. What makes it like that? Why doesn't it appear as black? Why doesn't it appear as yellow, blue? Because the surface of what that brick, the, the, the elements that that brick is made out of are such that they reflect red light, or brown light, whatever it is, however you would make that color pattern. I love this. In, in this picture, we see an illustration. In this illustration of just the manifold glory of one thing, pure white light. We see an illustration of the manifold splendor and majesty of the word. Whose creative genius and incomparable might enabled him to envision and produce something. That brings such richness and fullness to the way he wants his creation to be viewed. He could have made it black and white. Why didn't he? It's to show something about his glory to us. It's in the innate fullness and in the innate goodness, the inherent goodness of the word, it's that that has given rise to all these other things. And as we behold the various parts of his creation, we are beholding the various aspects of the character Of the one who made it. And so everything in creation. Is designed to draw our attention. Back to the word. God the son. And if anything in creation. Does not yield. That product in your heart. If it doesn't bring you back to Jesus. Then you're not viewing it rightly. Number four. Some of you. Some of you have told me to take this thing and throw it away. Um, I just want to be I want to be respectful. But. Number four. As the creator, the word is the source of all life. As the creator, what we learn here in John 1 verses 3 and 4, is that as the creator, the word is the source of all life. And this is where we're dipping into verse 4, okay? Notice in John 1, 4, it says, In him was life. Now we're going to pick up on this verse next week because this is the third and final assertion that is being made about the word in these opening verses. We're going to come back to verse 4 and verse 5 next week. But notice how the structure here in verse 4 is similar to the structure of verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, in Him was life. Now, in the same way that we can say the Word has always existed, that even in the beginning He always was, in that same way we can also say that life has always existed in the Word. In Him, life was that's a pretty bold assertion. Life is not something that the Word has received at a point in time. But rather, it is something that He eternally possesses and something that has eternally existed in Him. Now, if you can shift gears with me for just a minute, probably more like 10. Maybe you'll permit me to speak about this reality of what this verse says from an apologetical perspective. That is from a perspective that enables us to give a defense for the hope that is in us. One of the questions that has occupied the thoughts of mankind for millennia is, where did life come from? Particularly in more recent centuries, uh, specifically post-Enlightenment centuries, this question has been asked with greater fervor and urgency than in centuries prior. Because the many of our scientific postulations are uh, have been governed by a desire to see how we can explain the existence of life without the idea of God. Now that is the effort that has predominated most of modern scientific thought and and process is the endeavor to explain how life could exist apart from an idea of a being like God. Now, though it manifests in many different forms, the most popular answer to this question has either been the cop-out of agnosticism, well, I don't know, and I don't care, (laughs) or it has been some form of the idea known as spontaneous generation. Spontaneous generation is the idea that life sprang up on its own out of non-living matter. It just happened. It just came about. The conditions were right, and boom, there's life. Now, especially since the 1860s, Following the publication of Charles Darwin's, The Origin of the Species, the idea that life just sprung up all on its own has dominated Western scientific thought and research and including popular thinking. Now, when I'm thinking of scientific thought here, I am not dealing primarily with practical science. Where's Eric Larson? Where are you, brother? Raise your hand. Yeah. I'm not trying to condemn your work, brother. Right, Joe, highest regard, brother. I'm not saying anything negative about the kind of science that you guys do in practical, applied science. But when science is being used as a tool to undermine the reality of God's testimony in the world, testimony of himself, that's the kind of science that I'm dealing with. I may not have worded that entirely appropriately. You guys can correct me later, but... Ever since Darwin's the publication of Darwin's book, Origin of the Species, this idea has, has really dominated Western thought uh, when it comes to the origin of life. Now it's my understanding that Darwin's book assumed spontaneous generation rather than stating it outrightly. It was all based upon the assumption that this is true, without really giving any evidence for it. But a follower of Darwin named Thomas Huxley was affectionately known as Darwin's Bulldog. He pressed the idea of spontaneous generation militantly. For him, this was the definitive answer explaining how life could come about in a way that does not require the idea of God. Now, spontaneous generation had been around for generations. It had been around for decades, uh, centuries, right? I mean, what happens when larva seems to spring up from rotting food? Well, that's spontaneous generation. It just came up, right? Looking at frogs coming out of the pond, developing in, in the pond, and coming up onto the surface. That was an example of spontaneous generation. It just happens. Life just comes about on its own. Now, it's Huxley and those guys like him that were bringing this idea and thought to bear upon the, the notion of God. So we don't need God to explain where life came from because life springs up on its own. Now, a man named uh, Norton Guys, don't... Don't write that down. Just ask me later, I can get his name to you. But Norden he put it this way, Spontaneous generation was a philosophic necessity indisputable, indisputable for a natural scientific explanation of the origin of life. You can find more about this in Answers in Genesis. They have multiple articles dealing with spontaneous generation. That quote comes from life from life dot 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 or not. If you want to look that up yourself. Huxley believed that in the same way that, that larva on meat seems to spring into its own existence on its own, so also all life sprung up on its own from some primordial ooze or sludge millions of years ago. Now, that's, this idea captivated the minds of Western thinking so much that in the 1860s, British ships started dragging the bottom of the sea, trying to find remnants or some evidence of this primordial ooze. In 1868, one even claimed to have discovered the slime out of which all life crawled. And Huxley latched onto that, held it up and said, see, here's the proof. Here's the evidence. This is legit. Here's the reason why there is no such thing as God right here. Here's your maker. (laughs) This sludge that we crawled out of millions of years ago. Now what's interesting about that, that story's been pretty much buried in the scientific community in regard to this issue because it was all a hoax. Some sailors mixed salt water with wine and it made this sludge. And that's what they claimed to be the sludge that they drug up from the bottom of the sea. But Huxley and others latched onto it and ran with the idea, right? Now you can imagine. Why you can understand why the fallen, depraved, sin-filled, God-hating heart would feverishly and even fanatically latch on to something like this? We finally have a way to explain our existence without having to appeal to some God. We can get rid of this idea of God and of His Christ. We can burst their bonds apart and throw their fetters from us. We're free. Well, despite all of the enthusiasm, it was the French biochemist Louis Pasteur. Is that right? Robin helped me with that. Give give her credibility for proper pronunciation. Louis Pasteur. It was Louis Pasteur who definitively refuted the idea of spontaneous generation. Uh, Through his fermentation experiments that were published in 1882, Uh, He shared those findings, the findings of these experiments, with the French Academy of Sciences in 1881, who had offered an award to anyone who could either prove or disprove the idea of spontaneous generation. At the end of his presentation, Pasteur had so clearly and thoroughly refuted the idea that life could spontaneously spring up from non-living matter, that he declared, Never will the doctrine of spontaneous generation recover from the mortal blow of this simple experiment. There is no known circumstance in which it can be confirmed that microscopic beings came into the world without germs, without parents similar to themselves. And you know, what he's saying there? His ideas are what I believe became the basis of what we know as the law of biogenesis that life can only come from that which is already living, or that which can create life, we could say. Rudolf Virchow, no, I'm not pronouncing his right. It's probably Virchow. He stated the same reality in the mid 1800s when he said that all cells come from other cells. Now, despite the fact that this idea has been thoroughly refuted Variations of the theory of spontaneous generation have continued to be present till today. In fact, this is the main thing that most people claim whenever they're describing their beliefs in the non existence of God. Well, where did all life come from? Well, it just came, it just happened. Big bang, evolution, bam, here we are. Well, despite what people say, observable science confirms the testimony of Scripture. That all life comes from pre-existing life, the pre-existing life that is inherent in God, the author of life. And against the evolutionist, science that is done with integrity and without bias even confirms what scripture reveals to be the pattern that God has established in the beginning for how life would reproduce in this world. Life not only comes from other living organisms, but as Pasteur acknowledged, life must come from parents that are similar to it. That is, life um, comes from organisms that are like it, or living organisms can only receive life from other living organisms of the same kind. And you see that pattern in Genesis 1. They were reproducing after their kind. There's never been such a thing as a crossover species discovered, never. Where one species is becoming another species, it's never happened. So giraffes give life to giraffes and dolphins give birth and life to dolphins and dogs to dogs and unfortunately cats give life to cats. (laughs) Looking for my daughter, Addie. Cats are her favorite. That is what Genesis 1 describes as the method by which life-infused organisms share their life with the next generation. They give life to others after their kind. So where does life come from? As the law of biogenesis states, it cannot come spontaneously from something that is not already living. And by the way, this is one of the definitive refutations of an evolutionary or atheistic worldview. Life cannot come from something not already living. God tells us plainly in his word, right here in John 1, 3, where life comes from. Life flows to this world through the one in whom life inheres The word, the holy son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now here, that statement is just being made. It's being asserted here in John 1, 3. But the rest of this gospel is going to show many of the ways that its reality was demonstrated over and over again in the life and ministry of Jesus, right? We have the turning of water into wine. What is that except an an example of his creative abilities? We have Jesus healing the lame and the sick. And what is that other than the reality of testifying that Jesus is creator, He is life, and in him life is, and he gives and dispenses that life according as he wills. We see that in multiplying the food, in feeding of the 5,000, or restoring sight to the blind, or raising the dead, or even, as John 10, 16 says, raising himself from the dead. Creation itself testifies to us that God is absolutely necessary And the life of the Lord Jesus Christ proves to us who that God of creation is. And we're going to see that in the rest of this gospel. Now that's really one, just parentheses here. This is really one of the things that is at the core, the the heart and center of all of our devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why are we to be devoted to him? Well, because all of our life is borrowed from him. And therefore, all of our life that he lends to us is to be lived in fellowship with God through him. That's why Christ must be at the center of our devotion. Now, that's point four. So, life was in him. He is the source of life. Now, point five brings us to one last thing to consider about the word's relation to creation. The Christ-centered view that the Father wants us to have of the world. What do we learn about Jesus and his relation? The word and his relation to creation. Well, we learn from John 1-3 about the Christ-centered view that the Father wants us to have of the world. God the Father could have Snapped on his own and created the world without the agency of the sun. But there is a specific and particular order that he has chosen to bring creation about, and it is through the sun. There's never been a moment in the history of the universe when God has had any dealings with creation apart from the Word. John 1.3, you see that, that without Him or apart from Him was not anything made that was made. There's never been a moment in history when God has been in relation to any part of His creation in a way that did not directly involve the Word, His beloved Son. And as we're going to see in this gospel, it is the Son's work to glorify the Father. But it is the Father and the Spirit's work to glorify the Son. To submit all of the Son's enemies to Him. To magnify the greatness of the Son in this world. To bring the glory and the majesty and the splendor of the Son. To bear upon the hearts of dead sinners and bring them to new life. That is the Father's plan. That is the Spirit's work in this world. It is focused upon glorifying Jesus. It is a Christ-centered work that the Father and the Spirit are accomplishing. Even as the Son is accomplishing a Father-centered work. (laughs) Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, it says, that God has made known to us the mystery of His will, that according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Him, in Christ, for an administration suitable for the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things, in Christ. What is the good pleasure of the Father? What is it that the Father has purposed to accomplish in creation? Is it not the bringing of all things together in equal and absolute submission to his son? Is it not the exaltation of Jesus that the Father is after? Ephesians 1, 9, and 10 tells us that this is the Father's will, and that is exactly what is going to be accomplished at the end of all things. Putin will not disrupt that. Zelensky will not disrupt that. Biden will not disrupt that. Kamala Harris will not disrupt that. Yes, I said Kamala. You know where I'm at. (laughs) It doesn't matter who it is. Donald Trump is not going to disrupt that. Ted Cruz will not be a disruption to this great end of the father submitting everything to his son. And if you're a believer, you've been a part of that already. That's how we glorify the son. By being in submission to him. That's how we honor the father. By being subject to his son. Ephesians 1, 9 through 10 tells us that this is the mystery of God's will. This is the end. This is the whole purpose for which anything exists. So that everything would be summed up in Christ. Whether in heaven or on earth. Now that's going to happen at the end of all things. But John 1, 3 implies that this has been God's plan and purpose from the very beginning because it was his plan and purpose for all things to flow in creation from him through his son. In other words, the world did not begin to be Christ-centered the moment that the son stepped into time and was wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. That's not when the world began to be Christ-centered. All of history has been focused upon the Word. God the Father has purposed for all things to be brought into existence through His Son so that in all things the Son would be preeminent. Most important. Closing application. What's clear from all of this is that our entire existence is defined by the reality of the word. What does God want from you? How are you going to do the will of God in your life? Well, in order to do that, you have to know what his will is. What is His will for you? Simply put, God wants you and me to live a life of extreme, simple, and pure devotion to Him, specifically through His Son. What is God's will for you? What does He want for you? Most often, we think of that question in relation to practical things that we need to do throughout our life. Right? Who am I going to marry? What job should I get? Where should I go to college? Those kinds of things. Should I buy this car? Should I buy that house? Should I join this church? Or should I join another? All those practical things where we're thinking through and asking, God, what is your will for me? It's not the wrong question to ask, but the focus of that question is slanted. It's off. The question is right. But we need to bring that question into submission to God's answer. What is God's will for your life? God's will for your life is to be transfixed by a vision of glory in his son. Do you... Yes, no? God's will for you, his desire for you, his plan for you, the fullness of all of his purpose for your life is to stand there transfixed by a vision of Jesus Christ. No, 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 no. (laughs) No. That's right. No. What he wants from us, guys, God wants us to draw near to Him through His Son. That means in everything, in our approach to God the Father, it must be coming through Jesus. God wants us to be captivated by the Son. Colossians 2 8. Not just understanding the Son. Not just comprehending the gospel of the Son, but being taken captive by the Son. What does He want from us other than, as Brother Lauren preached just a couple weeks ago, He wants us to receive Him and He wants us to walk in Him. Our life before God is not about rule keeping. It's not about checking off the law list and making sure that we've got something to offer unto God, to commend ourselves to Him. That is not God's will for you. God's will for you is to abide in Jesus. That's John 15. God's will for us is to honor His Son. John 5, God's will for us is to set our minds upon Christ, Colossians 3. In other words, everything in our lives must flow out of us as an expression of loving and faithful devotion to Jesus Christ or else it is worthless in the eyes of God. Is that how we are living is the question I have. Is that the flavor of Oak Ridge Community Church? That when you step into this building, you know that you are surrounded by people for whom this is their ultimate priority. Jesus Christ, Him crucified, abiding in Him. At the end of your life, The substance of what you have done in your life should be this. When the preacher gets up to proclaim your funeral. After your soul has flown home to be with Christ in glory. The flavor that the entire audience should get from that sermon is, wow, this life is a monument erected for the glory of Christ. This person was all about Jesus Christ. God's will for your life is not about law keeping or doing something to prove yourself to him. It's about holding fast in love to Christ your head. And as you are filled with his life giving son. Your creator. God's life in you will bear fruit for the glory of the father. My friend, how Christ-centered is your life? I'm not asking how Christ-centered is your theology. And I'm not asking how Christ-centered is your confession. But in practice, how Christ-centered is your life? You know, William Ames, one of my favorite Puritans, he defined theology as a life lived to God. That the study of God really reaches its climax when it produces a life that is lived to God. And when your life is not being lived unto God, your theology is defective. It does not matter what you say you believe about the truth, or how you can articulate certain doctrines, how you can explain the realities of the gospel. It matters not if it has not changed your life. you understand that? And I'm not talking about generally, does it drive you to go out into the street and preach the gospel to the lost, though that may be and ought to be a fruit from it. I'm talking about primarily, what is your life like in your home? Primarily, do you honor God with the way that you eat? Do you honor God with what and how much you drink? Do you honor Jesus Christ? Is he the first and foremost in your perspective of your spouse? When you talk about, when you think about, when you, when you try to envision what it means to be a member in the local church, does the love of Christ and the glory of Christ cause you to love one another with sacrificial love, not because of what the other person does for you, but because of Christ and Christ alone? When you have that kind of mentality, when you approach what marriage, raising your children, using your singleness for the glory of Christ, when you have that kind of perspective, you will not waste your life and God's will for your life and all those other practical areas will be abundantly clear. You need to focus on one thing. You need to focus on knowing and loving and abiding in and trusting and holding fast to and keeping your eyes fixed on and setting your mind upon and being captivated by Jesus Christ. (sighs) Beloved, God has designed our entire lives to work only as they are oriented towards Christ. From whom and through whom and to whom are all things, so that in everything Christ would have preeminence and God the Father would get the glory. That is what the Gospel of John is after. The life of God in the soul of a man being lived back to him through Christ. Oh God, may you have that glory from our lives today. And on into eternity, Lord, may we rejoice at the opportunity that we have to behold and to believe in the glorious Son of God. God, bless your word to our hearts. Fill us with the fullness of your Spirit so that Christ may dwell richly in our hearts through faith. Father, we pray for this and we ask for this blessing for your sake for the sake of your glory and for our good, Lord. Amen. Before we end, hear the benediction from 1 John chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Keep your eyes fixed upon Christ, who is our life.